Hi everyone, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, just CSEC. CSE is a 501c6 nonprofit workforce development association dedicated to helping grow, support, and sustain the professionals charged with the cybersecurity of control systems. We're specifically talking about those systems that have pumps and valves and actuators, real cyber to physical moving parts, and control nearly every aspect of our modern connected industries. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It is my hope you find it inspirational or motivating or revealing or informative, and perhaps at times even a little entertaining. Take care and be well. Hi, this is Derek Harp, founder and chairman of CSE and the host of the CSE podcast show. And I have another great guest and friend on Bill Lawrence, chief delivery officer of Itegrity Corporation. He is uh, well known in the industry. He's done a lot of things and we will go over some of those steps and his milestones in his career. But if you don't know him, he is a military veteran, Navy, go Navy, just like myself. Yay. He's a technologist, though. He's an artist. He is a father. He is a husband. He is a singer, sailor, pilot. This is a well-rounded individual who's done a lot of things, and uh, this should be a very fun uh, interview. Welcome to the show, Bill. Derek, thank you so much for having me. Big fan. Well, Bill, let's go back in time, you know, and, and all the way back, as I, I make the same same joke. I've made it now uh, probably close to 100 times. Um, you know, superheroes uh, come from all kinds of backgrounds, and cybersecurity people are some sort of modern-day superhero, and all superheroes have a backstory, so you must have a backstory. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in a place called Sterling Heights, Michigan, which is near Warren, which is north of Detroit. So out there in the burbs where uh, Eminem sang about eight mile, I was up at 14 mile. I know where that is. I've driven up that road and seen those. Uh, very, difference. very smartly named uh, you know, roads. I'm very interesting, like, wow, very literal. <laughs> I think that's got a lot to do with my sense of navigation. I, I kind of figure out where I am. and It's all based on that, that grid that was set up long time ago back there. So what's, uh, you know, I always ask sort of two foundational questions. Uh, if you go all the way back before going to school with, you know, we're sort of, sort of like, this is what I'm, you know, what I'm doing professionally, any sort of exposure to technology in those early years, childhood years, computers? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Atari 2600 ruled. That was so much fun just, you know, flinging the cartridges back and forth. Uh, my parents, uh, you know, kind of spoiled me and my, my brother and sister with, uh, with computers growing up. I mean, we had a Commodore PET with his, you know, the keyboards attached and they got the monitor. We had an 80 character screen as opposed to 40, which is normal. And then, you know, you use the tape, the cassette tape to program in basic and load stuff in. So by like fourth, fifth grade, I was programming stuff for the first graders, little uh, math quizzes and stuff. And, uh, and you know, huge nerd, love, love technology like that. Yeah, it's interesting. I'd have to go back and do do a sort of qualitative look. But many, many people who've been on the show who are cybersecurity leaders uh, in the industry today, it did start pretty early. Not everybody, but it did start pretty early. There's a few that had the bait and switch. I'm like, no, no cyber. But my dad owned a, or ran, ran a plant. So I knew like operating technology before, you know, before anything else. I hung out in right. the plant or rewired electrical circuits. You know, there's a few of those that that uh, that, that was their formative thing. Uh, but uh, I'm assuming not to jump forward, operational technology, probably your military time is when you start getting exposed to that for the first time. Yeah, well, I mean, I saw a little art house film, you may have heard about it in 1977, called Star Wars, where you get, you know, a fighter pilot basically flying around where the wings move. And then saw another one when I was a sophomore in high school, uh, 86, called Top Gun. 
And then something like that where the wings move. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to go do and fly. Because, you know, add in there Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, you know, a lot of sci-fi. Being a pilot uh, was a good way to become an astronaut. And that's kind of why I, I chose the path that I wanted to go down to fly for the Navy, defend my country, and then uh, hopefully join the astronaut corps. Which ah, didn't happen. Yeah, but that was your uh, original idea. That's a pretty cool aspiration. Um, it's funny, you mentioned that the Star Wars, I just had this image in my head of the Death Star and of R2-D2 hacking into the system. It wasn't very well segmented. He could shut down the trash compactor 80 million levels below from that little, you know, that input spot that he found by the doorway. There's that and OSHA with, uh, you know, no railings anywhere. And, uh, and you know, it's it's just a nightmare. <laughs> So when did you, when did you, you know, it's funny, we are also minted from the same military era. Um, Top Gun had a big influence on me as well. And and I, I saw the statistics, you know, years later, I read that lots of people joined the military, especially the officer programs uh, in the wake of that very successful film for, for as far as recruitment goes. We did, were you like in high school saying, Navy, I'm going and applied, uh, you know, ended up going to the Naval Academy, right? Yeah, I was really looking around trying to figure out what I was going to do. Probably, you know, living in Michigan, you know, uh, Michigan, uh, University of Michigan or, or Michigan State or, you know, uh, something else like that. But when I discovered, hey, you can go go to college and uh, have it paid for, bang, that's uh, I went off. I got the box tops and went to the Naval Academy. And normally um, applications were like in the uh, eight, nine, ten thousand per year with the top gun class basically coming in from the class 88 in high school, it was up to 16,500. And this was back in the day where there weren't any, there was no internet. So all these essays were handwritten or typed up on a typewriter and, yeah. you know, sent in and uh, somehow I got in. It was great. That's awesome. Well, what did you study at the academy? Uh, I com studied computer science. Yeah. Which was really cool because they just launched the Naval Academy data network. So ethernet, all throughout the Bancroft Hall, which is the largest dormitory in the free world. All uh, 4,000 plus midshipmen live in there. So I was able to do my you know, programming, send it off, compile it in the mainframe, bring it back. Didn't work. Okay, fix this, send it off. Hey, it worked. Now I'm playing computer games the rest of the night. All my buddies are trudging off to labs. <laughs> That's great. Any, uh, you know, exposure to cybersecurity wasn't a term then, but were you, you know, how does this work? Were you trying to, you know, get into systems and do things? Any, any spark uh, there at that stage? Well, there was definitely, I mean, I was the go-to guy when somebody's screaming and either, you know, uh, we were using <laughs> three and a half inch floppies back then, not the floppies. Those, but yeah. And, you know, hey, they got their, their whole thing on WordPerfect on a disc, it went down. Um, I'm able to either recover it like that and, and started to find, you know, uh, viruses in the halls and uh, the rudimentary antivirus programs that were out there in the day, you know, were worth their weight in gold because you could usually, you know, fix fix what would ail the other folks. Yeah. What was that one yeah. that got named after his girlfriend and it just tore through America? Oh, Melissa yeah. or something like that? Yeah, there was Melissa, yeah. <laughs> The author of Melissa, I think he was named after a, 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 either a current or ex-girlfriend. That's good stuff. Yeah. He had a girlfriend. Good, good on him. So I think it'd be, you know, let's, it, it's, you were a fighter pilot and you served, thank you. You served an entire career. I mean, over 20, 20 years, right? Yes. Made it up to uh, commander, retired uh, in 2012. Uh, along the way, 
learned how to fly Tomcats and Super Hornets. Did uh, three cruises in uh, Tomcats from uh, the East Coast, Virginia, uh, Oceania. To we were Mediterranean. I was yeah, we had to be in the same time. Oceana, I lived near Oceana, but I went to Norfolk, where is where my ship was. But we were, we, were we, we could have bumped into each other, you know, at the coffee shop. Yeah, well, if you came to the Oak Club in Oceana, <laughs> that's I, I, a higher percentage. I have been there. Yeah, I went to uh, Mediterranean, Persian Gulf, and back, 96, 98, and then uh, again in 2004, which was uh, right after we went back into Iraq in 2003. So which airframe is your favorite? <laughs> it's right here. It's that, uh, you know, twin engine, supersonic, swing wing, air superiority fighter with uh, somebody in the front and back seat, like God intended. Uh, that's just awesome. so, so much fun. I mean. And you're flying off carriers. I mean, that's, uh, from my pilot friends, that's the extreme uh, sport right there. The absolute best flight on a carrier, well, I mean, there's all kinds of good flights to have, but you you launch off on the first sortie and then uh, they're getting the deck ready to, to launch the second one. And you're up there and you and a, a buddy or, or several are, are doing a dog fight. Clifford Dills, you got to shoot your watch. And uh, you come back down and it's a short cycle, too. Uh, so they have more gas to play with up in the air because generally you don't get refueled. You got to save all the gas coming in and land. So. Uh, you come back down, you, you come into the break, you, you know, land on the carrier, your hook catches, you stop, they, they get your hook up and they drive you over to the catapult again. That's ready for after the second launch, boom, shoot you off again. You come back around for a trap. So doing that clear blue day, beautiful sunlight, go down, have a slider. That was a lot of fun. Nighttime, pitching deck, bad weather, not so much fun. I, no, I can only, only imagine. We had, uh, well, there's so many stories you and I can share, but we can go off and say, what was this podcast about? I know there's a couple of things in your military years that are sort of interesting. What was this DARPA Service Chiefs Fellows Program? Yeah, so they put out this uh, all-nav advertisement, or at least something in the D.C. area, saying, hey, uh, we want a, a senior military officer to come and, and do a fellowship at DARPA. And I managed to convince the powers that be to, to let me go out of my uh, my job. I was working for the Commandant of Midshipmen at the time, who was basically the, the Dean of Students, and, and managed to get uh, my other buddies to cover for me for uh, three, four months. And went to uh, Alexandria, Virginia, and uh, and got to see a lot of, of what DARPA does, how they take technology and incubate it and try and get it from the laboratory across the valley of death out to commercialization. I saw the small, medium, and large companies, you know, robotics, digital additive technology with titanium, all kinds of just really amazing stuff. So, And so anything there that is, uh, you know, informed your your future journey, you know, where you obviously you've done all sorts of cybersecurity and you, and you went on to teach before you even got out. You were teaching cybersecurity at the academy. So th this theme had already been certain winding up. But you're a pilot, you're an instructor for pilots, but then somewhere in there, technology takes more and more hold. Yeah, I mean, all the way along, graduating from the Naval Academy, I actually found a letter saying, hey, we, we wouldn't mind you coming back and teaching if you wanted to. And then I wasn't able to because of you know other duties. But everywhere I went, I was always involved in technology, whether it was uh, the uh, what is it called? The uh, advanced data processing officer as a collateral job yeah. or 
wiring what we call Skynet illicitly on an aircraft carrier to get uh, you know 30 v 30 Call of Duty games going. <laughs> and then yeah, towards uh, you know the end of my career, I'm back at the Naval Academy. I was talking to a guy who was starting up the computer science department or the, the cybersecurity department at the Naval Academy. And I uh, said, hey, you're a computer science major. We need instructors. You want to teach? I'm like, heck yeah, that'd be great. So uh, got a, a good chance. It was very foundational based in NIST. And I think it was a really good. It was uh, the Naval Academy had the first mandatory freshman cybersecurity class of any undergraduate college in the U.S. Yeah. I did not know that. To me, that resonates as such a good idea, but not just there, other places too. It's like, we got to bring up the hygiene. All of us have to do a little better in cybersecurity. Now, yes, the cyber warriors got to do their part and all the professionals, but pretty much everybody else had better do better than they're doing too. Because I'd say that, you know, for folks like us who grew up with the command line and, you know, got to see behind and then all of a sudden Windows 3.1 comes up and then boom, 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 it's all hidden. It's even worse for, you know, modern students. I mean, they see Facebook or Snapchat or whatever the kids use these days. And they don't see anything behind the scenes. And uh, I think we had a better foundational knowledge of, of what was going on. And that's what I tried to, uh, you know, comport to my students, let them know, hey, there's, it's not all smoke and mirrors. There's actually stuff happening here. And you can be more control of it than you think. Yeah. Any, uh, any interesting stories, I think, before we move on to what you did after your military years, Anything from those years or from that last stint is teaching the cybersecurity at the academy? Any, any interesting stories or, or sort of revelations that you can recall from that time period for you? Or anything, anything that happened then that is part of who you are today? Well, the other good thing that I got to do was, uh, so I was doing a, a full-time day job. I was teaching cybersecurity, and then I also got to teach another class called Ethics and Moral Reasoning for the Naval Leader. Mm. And that class was put into existence after the double E cheating scandal at the Naval Academy. I remember that. Yeah. It happened in 92 when I was graduating, but it was a class of 94 that it happened to. And there's just a bunch of people who, who cheated and, uh, and had copies of the test floating around in the hall and then studying other copies of tests and they didn't know. And then some did, and some were selling it and they did a, a 60 minute special anyway, but, the class is fantastic. It's a, uh, a foundational, you got a, um, a sheepskin holding a PhD philosopher teaching a big seminar, and then you get smaller groups together, and then you have distinguished military professors, or uh, I forget what the technical term was, but um, uh, folks who've been there in the fleet and seen that stuff, and then brought it out in class for a little bit more, you know, realism and discussion. But all the great stuff, Kantianism, utilitarianism, stoicism, loved, 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 loved that class. And those who can't do teach, so a class in ethics was perfect for me. <laughs> so what's the transition? I know, you know, it's a pretty important, you spend the next almost decade, I mean, a little shy, I guess, of a decade, but a long stint in roles at the North America Electric Reliability Corporation, starting at one rung, but ending up as the chief security officer. So, you know, a lot of, we have a lot of veterans in our community and they're always like, how, what do I do when I get out? And how do I get out? What was your transition story? Yeah, so um, this Naval Academy has got a great uh, program or it's external to it, but it's called the uh, Service Academy uh, Career Conferences, yeah, SAC. 
Service Academy Career Conference. And I went to several of those in preparation for going to uh, to get out. And w- when I went to some before I dropped my letter, you can't talk to certain companies because they can't talk to you because of law and stuff like that. And then, uh, you know, after you drop your letter and then, oh my gosh, I'm actually getting out of the military. Then uh, there, either nobody was looking for a, a F-14 Tomcat with, you know, top secret SCI clearance with, you know, computer science and other stuff on his resume. Or it was a big downturn and nobody was looking for anybody. And actually, I think it was. There were companies that just said, hey, yeah, come fly our corporate um, Tomcat that didn't exist. Oh, well, <laughs> no, unfortunately, I'd, I'd, I'd still be doing that if I could. But it, it just, I went through the whole job search thing and uh, I went to one down in South Carolina and you get these little name tags, say, hi, I'm Bill, please hire me kind of thing. And in the back of the name tags, there were tickets for companies that wanted to see you. Yeah. And there were like three or four from insurance companies. And I, of course, go by their table. I'm like, hi, what's this all about? Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Were those cyber necessarily? Or they could have no. been other? Oh. No, I, I kept talking to people about cyber and nobody was, there was not a lot of cyber at the Service Academy Career Conference. And then I, the CIA said, hey, stop by the booth. I talked to them and then I learned about, you know, once you apply, don't apply for another year because then it messes up the system. And uh, and they were going to pay me like at a GS7 level. <laughs> and uh, that's uh, as much fun as that'd be. No, thank you. And then uh, I went to a, a table, NERC, and I'm like, well, I, I had to look them up. They weren't in the program. And then, wow, hey, how's it NERC? And it's, it's North American. What, what's this all about? And and their CEO, Jerry Cauley, was sitting at the table and, and uh, he's like, well, we, you got cyber on your resume. We do cyber. I'm like, oh, that's great. So several iterations later, you know, with other jobs, you know, talk to and everything like that. Boom. I'm, I'm working at NERC uh, in the D.C. office, which is about a third of the company, 200 people, total third up in D.C., about two thirds down in Atlanta. What was the role you first took there? I was a uh, project manager. I was responsible for taking their annual grid security conference and uh, annual grid security exercise and uh, making them more more bigger, more better. Yeah, and that is probably the era where you and I were one degree of separation away that we didn't yet know each other. Mike Asante and others, I'm assuming Tim Conway, who we both both know, that's probably where you were also working with them. Yeah, so Mike had left NERC probably about a year or two before. He was the first chief security officer there. Mark Weatherford was there after him. And then Mark got picked up by DHS and went there for a while. And then eventually it was like uh, Mark Sox and uh, Tim Roxy and uh, and then me. So, but uh, but yeah, Tim Conway was like, uh, he's with SANS and uh, amazing instructor. He was, we'll probably get into GridX here in the middle yeah, I think we should talk about that. And I know I, he's been highly involved with that, I, and maybe you can shed some light on that. I think that's, that'd be an important thing to talk about because there's probably a lot of our listeners, if they're not in the electric sector, they may not know, you know, all what's been going on there. And people ask me all the time, you know, which sectors are more mature than others? Well, for a lot of reasons, energy's probably the leading sector. You know, manufacturing, not so much. You know, building control systems, definitely not. But, but, I mean, you know, energy, there's been an effort for a while. You just listed off a whole bunch of CISOs or CSOs in a row going back many, many years. 
And, you know, so there's been taking it seriously in, you know, in, in NERC version, whatever that we're on now, NERC ship, what's the version and what are we on now? Well, they decoupled it from a, uh, you know, just a tranche of, you know, like SIP 3, SIP 4, SIP 5. Yeah. So now it, it varies by the, uh, the actual SIP standard. So it, but it depends. But years, what, what are we talking, the first version of that, it would have been when? Oh, uh, we're talking about, uh, so NERCTHRIS had in the ring in uh, 2004 after Energy Power Act uh, said, hey, FERC, you got to pick somebody to do this. And then I think 2006, uh, that's when the uh, that's when NERC uh, changed over from a council to a corporation. And, and then towards the end, like 2008, 9, 10 was when the first SIP standards started coming out uh, for cybersecurity there and to be enforceable. Um, and then they've been, you know, going through various modifications over time. But see, my tenure at NERC was really on the the security side. SIP is a baseline across the industry and very compliance related. Uh, right. And we managed to stiff arm that on the security side. I know enough to be dangerous, but not not too much. <laughs> so talk about what you yeah talk about what you did do and talk about the GridX. Yeah, so GridX was fantastic. I mean, it was a, a very cyber-focused uh, exercise for GridX 2011, kind of rebranded. They call it GridX 2 for uh, for 2013. That's when I, I met Mr. Tim Conway, quickly realized that all I needed to do was be the mouthpiece to get the knowledge from that man's brain out to the electricity sector. And you have to travel a bunch of different places. And that's, I don't know if I met Mike then, but I did meet him later on going to Idaho National Laboratory, Pacific mm-hmm. Northwest National Laboratory, uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory, a bunch of different places, uh, talking to all of the, you know, the various different types of electricity uh, utilities with uh, EEI, APPA, and NRECA, and, and getting their input, really bringing the stakeholders together, making a cake, and then serving it out in bite sized chunks for. Basically, a dungeon master, uh, we call it exercise uh, coordinator, and then their participants at, uh, at each location. We made it a, a very cyber physical event then, too, because uh, in 2013, that's when the, the Metcalf attack it happened in the, uh, the substation south of uh, Silicon Valley. 17 out of 18 transformers were planked by uh, uh, rifle fire, and uh, I can keep going on that. <laughs> But anyway, so we put that in there and people thought, oh, yeah, cyber and physical. Let's get our teams talking together during this two day GridX exercise. And how many people, if that thing grew, how many people would be involved in GridX? So I think it started out in uh, like 450 in the first year, which is pretty good. You know, you get some major utilities and then you got people from various uh, departments. Towards the end, like GridX 20, my tenure, uh, GridX 5 in. Uh, it would be like uh, 10,000 uh, plus and wow. internationally and then also cross sector, too, because we're telling electric utilities, hey, why don't you get your major manufacturers and, and have them send an observer to at least see what the electric company is going through and then, you know, talk about, you know, critical loads and the whole nine yards. Hey everybody, Derek Harp here. And I just want to take a brief moment to thank three companies that make this podcast series possible. The first company is Waterfall Security Solutions. They led the charge this year for the podcast, and they specifically sponsored it from their podcast, the Industrial Security Podcast. 
So check that out. That's a great linkage to an entire other series of over 100 episodes. They had their anniversary recently focused on control system cybersecurity. And they were supported this year by KPMG and Fortinet. We could not do this without them. These companies not only have supported this podcast series this year, but they've supported CSA since its very early days eight years ago. And we're entirely grateful to the teams and dedicated professionals at Waterfall Security Solutions, KPMG, and Fortinet. It really took off. And on the, also, the other component that we added with GridX2 was an executive tabletop. And that was a fantastic industry-hosted come, you know, you got your big square. I think we crammed 42 people around it to have 21 from government, 21 from industry with all the major food groups, DOE, DHS, uh, FBI, uh, NSA. And then, you know, like I mentioned, the, the folks, the IOUs, the uh, public power and municipalities and uh, co-ops represented and uh, gave them a really nasty scenario. And they learned a lot together. It was not a uh, gotcha either. It was like, here's the full scenario. Prepare for this. Here's the questions we're going to ask. Yeah. Uh, so they had a chance to to practice and then and talk to each other and and, and came up with a lot of good uh, good results from those reports. That's got to be. I, you know, I should know this, but I, I if I had to guess, that is the earliest table topping exercise practice in the OT space. It's got to predate almost anything else. Yeah, I don't necessarily know of anything done at that level in unclassified space too. That was the constant yep. challenge because they would go off and then you couldn't get everybody into the room and then it was classified. You could do reports out. Yep. We had, we said, nope, it's got to be unclassified. And it was really well represented too. I mean, some, I forget the names now of the government reps, but we had like a senior White House rep there, you know, assistant secretaries. If you had to say what one or two of your biggest takeaways from uh, those years and those exercises, what, what are they? Well, from the distributed play across all the electric utilities, it really was getting them to break down the silos and, and talk amongst yourselves. Hey, so we need to segment or, or take down this part of the network. And meanwhile, the physical security folks are freaking out because that then they lose all visibility of their cameras. So by having those kind of conversations with the cyber and the physical, it's just totally beneficial. And you also get a lot of information out there about recent attacks, modeling after those. For the executive tabletop, it was, I mean, the big light bulb that came on for me was, uh, you know, if you're an electric utility and you're not able, either through cyber attack or just flat out OT attack, and you can't produce power, you can't get money in from your customers, you're going to be out of business in one or two months. And then who's going to operate your grid? Who's going to bring that back up? And if you think the government's going to roll in with trucks and do that, they don't have the numbers, they don't have the technology capability to do that. So having the government being able to do something with their the power of the purse to guarantee that those companies don't disintegrate, that was a huge light bulb for, I think, a lot of people. It's interesting. I hear you describing this, and it's big. It's across many different companies and organizations and government institutions, but the same thing where people are having some breakthrough moments can happen even inside a company, breaking the silos down, building bridges, getting people together, getting executives to come get at least some exposure. Those, yeah. All those same things work within a company, and those are turning points. So from what I'm hearing in the field, it's like, this we're finally making some traction because we did more of that sort of thing. 
Yeah, and sweetening the pot then too, uh, you know, uh, with Tim's connection to the Sands Institute, we were able to give, you know, CEHs for participation in the exercise. So then a electric utility that brings potentially in, brings in consultants to help them get the most out of the exercise out of these two days. They plan on it every two years. They use it for their training, for SIP requirements. They also just really try and revamp their entire policy and procedures. They really do focus a lot of effort and uh, you know money on on getting the most out of it. So uh, it was really rewarding to see that people responded so well to that and got the benefits from the exercise. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you said light bulb went on for you. I'm sure that that's the nature of those. those light bulbs can go on for a lot, a lot of people looking to real turning points. As long as they keep coming on, that's great. And I mean, there's more to it too, because you know, uh, 2015, 2016, the attacks in Ukraine, uh, where uh, Sandworm took out uh, some uh, distribution level in the first one, and you know, uh, transmission level attacks there, we were able to get well. The genius of Tim and the the committee coming up with malware and modular malware ideas uh, prepared industry for that to happen. And then for it to happen, we were able to get out through GridX and other ways to the EISAC as well, the uh, Electricity Information Sharing and Analysis Center. We got out actual Yara rules and samples for people to look for. In their- now that's super. Any funny stories from that era that you uh, recall? It was just you know, a lesson in project management for me, Um, you know, when did the report have to get out? Okay, well, it needs this much time to get percolated and edited and everything like that. And oh, well, there's the exercise. And now what do we have to do before that? So just, you know, looking ahead and then reversing everything uh, really helped. And then getting just so many people wanting to just put in their time and help out to include, you know, uh, Mike Asante. I mean, Went out and saw him at Idaho National Laboratory. He's very gracious, giving of his time. He's writing, you know, a thesis around, you know, nations are sorting fleets and geopolitical madness is happening and everything like that. I'm like, hey, Mike, I got to throw this down to a local utility. <laughs> but it, it was good to add some of that stuff into the uh, executive tabletop piece. So I appreciate it. Yeah, he, he was, uh, you know, he and I went to college together. We go way back and and I... I always, he was always intellectually very out there, writing, thinking, and reading, consuming the amount of stuff that he consumed and retained. He had a gift in that area of consuming a lot of information, retaining a lot of it, uh, and that was that's part of his part of his gifts, no question about it. Definitely. So you know, military long stint, you know, whole career, then a pretty nice chunk at, at NERC, a different, obviously very different kind of organization, and then you went to a a smaller organization, earlier stage organization, which is a whole nother experience, near and dear to my experience set, because when, when I left the military, I've been all with, with startups and early stage companies, but you made that leap and you went to security gate. So talk about making that choice. And that was that's going to a very different beast, a very different animal. Yeah, the piece I didn't touch upon yet really was, you know, X-Wing pilot dreams aside, I, I did want to do something to defend my nation. So I got the military service in there and then NERC's uh, mission, obviously, reliability and security, the electric grid. Like two sides of the same coin, really, right there. One trying to take other people's critical infrastructure stuff apart. This one protect it, and then going to Security Gate, it's a uh, SaaS-based risk assessment platform company, and trying to do that across more sectors and bring more of the expertise with the 
the standards and the frameworks through the platform to do that. And yeah, I took a role as the uh, chief information security officer there. I uh, had a small team, but we were mighty and did some good work there. Came to Houston, loving it here. My daughters, uh, got three of them, they're all in competitive cheerleading. So that was kind of a big driver to, for a good place to land. Yeah, you're still there and now you're with uh, Itegrity. So just maybe a quick mention about what you're doing there. Yeah, so Itegrity, uh, this opportunity came along. I'm the chief delivery officer, which means I'm responsible for the uh, effective and efficient delivery of all services to all of our customers, making sure that uh, it, and we are a cybersecurity and compliance services uh, company. So we don't have the uh, the fancy platforms and, and gizmos and, and widgets. We are there to give them advice on things like NERC-SIP. Uh, you know, ISO 27000 series, NIST, TSA, Security Directive 02, CD, whatever they're on now. And we're, uh, you know, got a, got a team that's, uh, that I'm, I'm happy to be part of. Oh, awesome. And if, so if you look at all these years, is there anything, if you were sitting down, uh, you know, next to uh, Bill Lawrence uh, circa, you know, 1990, uh, Four ninety five, ninety six. You know what? What would you? What advice would you give that bill now? Knowing what you don't. I just keep flashing to that at the end of Avengers Endgame with uh, Captain America sitting on the bench and it's like, "Hey, hey Cap, you gotta tell me about her sometimes." Like, no, I don't think I do, <laughs> or something like that. So yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, holy cow, there's so much stuff that uh, I learned along the way, but I wouldn't be any different position than I am right now with a great wife, great family, living in a a great place. So I'm, and great friends too. This has been awesome so far. (laughs) Well, we get, you know, we get a lot of questions from the, you know, our membership is very diverse, but there's a group of it that's, that are entering, you know, our workforce or want to enter, you know, the OT cyber workforce, any advice for them based on all these years, people, they ask, where should I specialize or should I specialize or, where should I get experience? What should I do first? How do I break in? I mean, these questions come up, you know, every week now. I mean, we've got 30, we just passed 32,000 people signed up in the community. There's a quotient, a healthy quotient of those that that's the stage they're at. So I'm not as good as Mike, but I do occasionally keep things in my brain housing group. And when you start talking about that for entry level people, I reach back to my, oops, this side. Uh, the Patrick Lencioni corner of my my shelf. So if you're familiar with five dysfunctions of the team, he writes in parables, stories, really easy to pick up and read. I would recommend somebody reading The Ideal Team Player. And I've got no financial ties, but I do dig the books. And The Ideal Team Player tells about three things a person needs to be. You could be maybe a superstar on the field. You could be, you know, something like, if you're humble, hungry, and smart, and not just technically smart, but smart with your interactions with other people, those are three things that will really help build a good team. And those are the things that your employers will look for. Those are the things that you'll look for in teams. And as you, you know, oh, I also hate the the hierarchical thing. As you move away from the problem with younger people being closer to the problem and you can survey the battlefield, those are the things you're going to want to look for in your teams of Less experienced folks. Yeah. Can you hold that book up, up close to the camera? Obviously, our podcast people, if you just retake, we do the title for them. The Ideal Team Player by who? Patrick Lencioni. Okay. So you can look that up. And obviously, if, if you see the clip on YouTube, you can you can see the book that Bill just held up. Yeah, cool. I'm super glad you brought that up. There's always little nuggets in all these interviews that are 
that are all different and book recommendations pretty cool i might i may make that a standard request from now on it's like recommend a book but well, I I wouldn't say across. can i do two yeah do it do it yeah how to be perfect P-E-R-F-E-C-O, the T's over there, okay. <laughs> Michael, sure. Uh, if you ever saw the comedy, The Good Place, it's a philosopher's dream wrapped into a sitcom. This guy was a writer for it. He's one of the stars of that show. But uh, it is one of the funniest and most approachable reads about philosophy and ethics you'll ever find. It's going to be uh, it's I'm all the way back to that uh, to that the work you were talking about doing with the ethics course near the end of your your naval service. You did enjoy that. <laughs> yep, I, I'm still reading about it. Still love that show. It was it was fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you. That's cool. Two two cool book recommendations. I would say something interesting that's thematically true. We're now past 100 episodes of this show and interviewing so many interesting people. Voracious reading, consumption of content is true to many of you, if not most. <laughs> And it came up. It's probably true to all, you know, but maybe we didn't talk about it. But some people, it came up often that people talked about were consuming information constantly, learning, always learning more, uh, never feeling like they've arrived. Like, I got I know everything I need to know in this space. Very, very few people think that way that, that are still growing and going. And to challenge yourself to read a book from cover to cover, I don't, Kindle doesn't cut it for me. And I spend far too much time just death scrolling on my little pocket supercomputer, but you can get a book and digest it and then buy it to your life to make your life yeah. better or, or others, then then that's a win. Yeah, that's awesome. So what are you excited about, you know, as we wrap up here, just if you keep looking ahead, any technologies or approaches um, that one, you're either fascinated with or interested with, or you think is going to be deeply impactful and back to the question of sort of recommendations, people are saying, is there, is there an area that I can start, you know, I could be on the early edge of learning it, you know, is that AI? Is that machine learning? Is that you know, quantum computing, you know, all these things are going to affect cybersecurity in different degrees or, or already are starting to. What are you excited about? What are you looking at the future? Yeah, quantum computing is still, I guess, a thing out there. But boy, the, the shine has been lost compared to uh, ChatGPT and generative AI. Um, I'm a big AI proponent. Uh, I think we're in an age where now is the time to, to hone your craft. And by that, I mean, learn how to do prompts correctly into an AI engine or use an AI engine to, they've got plugins in GPT-4, one called Prompt Perfect. So you give it a prompt and say, hey, make this perfect, and then it'll give you something better. I do think we're heading towards an era where the people who cast the best spells as a wizard or cast the best prompts will be able to be more successful than the people who don't know or ignore the amazing capabilities that are out there. I, I, I'm having a ton of fun with uh, image generation. Mm -hmm. Although I will go on record right now. If you ask an AI to show you an F-16, it'll show you an F-16. If it'll show you an F-18, it'll show you an F-18. If you show an F-4, it'll show you an F-4. If you show you an F-15, it'll show you an F-15. If you ask it to show an F-14 Tomcat, God's airplane, no engine I've found so far will show you anything other than a screwed up F-15. Wow, I wonder why that is. I am so disappointed because there is so much good art out there. That's really interesting. It's absolutely bizarre. And yeah. I've looked and I've, it, it makes me pull the rest of my hair out. Well, but you're, 
but your, your, your point there, I think is a good one as we wrap up, uh, Bill, is it's a tool in the toolbox. Some people will have it in the toolbox and others won't. And that's what people are at right now, right? Whether to equip themselves with it. Here's the other problem too, in a, a less than minute 30, I think I got it down. So if you don't have that experience, we talked about that, going behind the graphic user interface and doing the command line thing, you don't know what right is, you're going to believe what AI says. So when I asked it, hey, and I asked a couple different engines, hey, what submarines are in Terminator movies? And one of them said, oh, Terminator 2, yes, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, we've got a submarine right in this. I'm like, no, there's no, there's no submarine in Terminator 2. And they said, oh, thank you for correcting me. Yes, I looked at all five Terminator movies and there are no submarines whatsoever. What about the one with Christian Bale? Oh, you're right, thank you for correcting me. Terminator Salvation has Christian Bale in it, has no submarines. So then I, I Wikipedia it. I got, yes, the USS Wilkinson or whatever. And I'm like, what about this? Oh, thank you for correcting me. Yes, there is a short submarine with a hunter killer blowing it up. And so there's two things to learn from that. If you didn't know by watching that terrible movie, Terminator Salvation, that uh, there was a submarine in it, you just say, oh, okay, no, no submarines, fine. And number two is apparently Skynet wants to hide the fact that we can use submarines to destroy it. So take that for what it's worth. <laughs> I love it. What a great way to wrap up. Well, Bill, uh, I think you know this is coming. Uh, I've done it now. I think I'm probably 95 of my 100 episodes. It's now pretty much the de facto ending. But I borrow something from a show that I, I loved. And I, I really need to see. It's probably still running. But the longtime host, James Lipton, did pass on. And he ran it for years. And he interviewed all the greatest actors and actresses on the stage of his uh, the, where he, the school where he was the dean at the acting school in New York. And he, he used this 10 questionnaire uh, to finish his interview. It's called the Pivot questionnaire that he borrowed from a French show. So it's decades of use. I have not changed a word of it. And uh, just sort of as a, a tip of my uh, my hat, I guess, to that show that I enjoyed in all those interviews. If you're up for it, I'll give you the, the same 10 questions. Sounds good. All right. What is your favorite word? My favorite word is love. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. What is your least favorite word? I can't, can't. What turns you on, either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Learning how to do more with a certain technology. What turns you off? It's hard to overcome apathy in a person or a team that turns me off. What is your favorite curse word? My goodness, from uh, Farfignugan. What sound or noise do you love? I love the sound of my wife's laughter. I, I try and make that happen as much as possible. What sound or noise do you hate? My kids fighting. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? It would have been neat to be an astronaut. The timing didn't work out with the whole get rid of the space shuttle and thing, but uh, an astronaut would have been cool. I'm, I'm friends with the guys and Artemis for the mission around the moon. He was a Tomcat guy. so. He's the mission commander. It's going to be awesome. Go read. Go Tonto. What profession would you not like to do? Accountant. So if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Good job, my faithful servant. Thank you. Just wrapping up with Bill Lawrence, Chief Delivery Officer at Itegrity, a longtime contributor to space, a man of many talents, and a generous giver of his time for for lots of different causes in the cybersecurity industry and and a Tony 20 plus year, 21 year veteran of, 
of the U.S. Navy. Thank you for all of that service then and giving now and, uh, and supporting CSA in many ways. Um, I appreciate uh, appreciate you and everything you you, you do for us. Uh, we all benefit from as a society from from people like you. Thank you, Derek. It's uh, an honor to be here, and uh, thank you for your service in the Navy too. Take care. Be well. Bye, Bill. Hi, everyone. This is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of the Control Systems Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, just CSEC. CSEC is a 501c6 nonprofit workforce development association dedicated to helping grow, support, and sustain the professionals charged with the cybersecurity of control systems. We're specifically talking about those systems that have pumps and valves and actuators, real cyber to physical moving parts, and control nearly every aspect of our modern connected industries. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It is my hope you find it inspirational or motivating or revealing or informative, and perhaps at times even a little entertaining. Take care and be well.